regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi listeners, this is Datacast, where a long-term in-depth conversation with data practitioners to unpack the narrative shows the career. My guest today is Gabby Still, co-founder and CEO of Pickwork a no-code data transformation tool that empowers business users to model and manage their own metrics. She's also the co-founder of Data Culture, a data engineering and visualization consultancy. Previously, Gabi led data visualization engineering at WeWork and worked on data storytelling at Washington Post. So Gabi, it's my great pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me, James. Appreciate the intro. Fabulous. So to st- start our conversation, I want to talk a bit about your personal background. According to my research, I believe that you, you actually studied painting and drawing back in college in Canada, and then you start your career as a graphic designer working in the fashion industry. Can you share briefly about your artistic interest growing up and your early career working in design? Yeah, so I moved to New York as a teen. I was 12 years old when I moved from London, England. And I was taking courses. I went to Brooklyn Technical High School for science and engineering, but I studied there industrial design. And I uh, took courses at Parsons in high school, a lot of figure drawing classes. And that was what led me to be interested in the creative arts. And I really had no idea what I wanted to study in university, but I was drawn to the idea of of studying creative open-ended things. I really enjoyed this practice of figure drawing. I don't think I was ever so good at it. It wasn't a matter of raw talent, but it was honing that skill. And my parents are Canadian. I have a Canadian passport and it made sense for me to explore opportunities in Canada at that point. And I ended up going to a university called Western University where I majored in fine arts I specialized in painting and drawing, and I did a lot of oil painting during that time, which was difficult, but interesting. And then coming back from university to New York City, uh, I realized I wasn't going to be an artist. I didn't want to sit alone in a room and paint. I wanted to be around people, and the most natural transition would be moving towards graphic design. So I actually went back to Parsons, did a graphic design degree, worked in the fashion space, the advertising space. And there was a lot of, but it wasn't quite enough. I felt like I hit a wall pretty quickly where I couldn't build the things I was designing. So I wasn't able to code and I didn't understand uh, that side of things. And a lot of the content I was working with, I remember I was making like hang tag labels for a denim company or uh, advertising specific different products. And I just really wanted to do something that was more meaningful, more impactful, and related more to the building side, the engineering side. So Parsons had come out with this brand new degree, data visualization. It was the first year they'd ever run it. And I applied and ended up joining their first cohort for a Master of Science in Data Visualization. And that put me on the path to getting involved in data and eventually becoming kind of an evangelist for data visualization. Because at that time, people were constantly asking me, what is data visualization? What does this field even mean? So that's how the journey began. But I was always very open-minded about what I was studying, and I never really thought of the next step. And the painting, drawing stuff was just, I felt like creativity was something that you could apply to any field or industry. For sure. Just out of curiosity, like, how did you become interested in data visualization and just get exposed to it from the background of creativity. Yeah. Yeah, So I've always been like a multidisciplinary enthusiast. I think that the best work, and that's something that Leah and I have carried with us in all of our companies, and it's been very present in the work later on. But the idea of just doing one thing forever was never appealing to me. 
And data visualization was so interesting because it was the combination of things I loved. It was like getting to be really creative, but also pairing that with access to super interesting stories and storytelling content and that sort of thing. I think if I could uh, describe one of my skill sets or what's my most uh, impactful skill, it's communication. It's storytelling. It's being able to to access other people's stories, share my own, and tell those stories in a more interesting way. And data visualization was just the exact path to doing so and also allowed me to develop brand new skills. I'd never learned front-end engineering before. I'd never really written SQL or done any kind of data structuring. I had studied some statistics because I had a minor in psychology in my undergraduate years, but none of that really panned out until starting that degree. So I, I liked it because it was a combination of disciplines and also something brand new. And it tied into this idea of telling stories and communicating messages. Yeah, really like your part about being a multidisciplinary and a marriage between the creative design as well as some of the more technical aspect that you eventually learn about. So you talk about that first cohort of uh, the MFA program. And I'm in data visualization at Parson. And looking back at that time in class school, how would you describe that just overall experience? How do you recall any three classes of favorite project that you work on in school? So Parsons is an amazing place. And to be at a design school, but in a program focused on engineering and data was really exciting for me. Uh, there's another program that Parsons has, the MFA in Design Technology. And they have a lot of exciting multidisciplinary courses. And I had access to those courses during that time. It was during that time when I also connected with an amazing organization called Open Style Lab, a wearable technology for people of all abilities. It had initially been started at MIT and then brought over to Parsons by Grace Jung, who is still a very close friend. So I volunteered for them. I got really involved in some of those studies. I, I remember I took a class. It was the period of the, the election, the 2016 election was up and coming, and I ended up actually going to work for the Washington Post after graduating. I, but one of the catalysts that pushed me that direction was I, I took a course that was in partnership with NYU's journalism school, all about storytelling and, yeah, journalism and code, I think. And those professors were also really exciting. I think, again, like the most interesting things happen when you bring together people from different spaces. Uh, unfortunately, the data engineering world is not that diverse. Um, and it's one thing that I've dedicated a lot of time in my career to trying to change engineering generally, but specifically the data space. And when the people that are touching data about the population are not representative of the population, nothing good can come of that. So we're living that. But those experiences, a lot of what I was exposed to during my graduate degree and my time at Parsons pushed me in the direction that has led me to where I am now. So a really exciting time. Thanks for sharing those insights and that journey that you to, to throw thanks to your education. And I believe you later on actually become an instructor and do some part-time work teaching data vision classes both at Parsons and even at Columbia, right? What have you learned from teaching that has impacted the work you do today? Yeah, so there's no PhD in data visualization yet. So when I graduated, within a few months, I was being recruited to come and speak at conferences and give my thoughts on the field and the industry. And I spoke at Google and Amazon. And I flew to Seattle and gave a talk at Microsoft's. They were doing like a television show. And eventually became an instructor and started teaching data visualization. And I developed a certificate program at Parsons that made the field even more accessible. I also taught at Columbia. There were talks around NYU as well. Teaching is really uh, a special thing that I that have always enjoyed since that period because it's a way to not only give back and bring more people into the field. And as I just mentioned, this data engineering field, the data science field, the data field in general really needs more voices. So it's like an actionable way that I can bring more people into the space, make things more accessible. And also being someone that sort of came to engineering and code later in my career, 
I did do this master's degree. But again, my undergraduate was holding a paintbrush. It was not typing on a keyboard. It wasn't even writing essays for the most part. So I, I really enjoy that. The most impactful teaching experience I've had, though, was with the Code with Classy organization, which came later. One of uh, the first partnerships Leah and I had when we started Data Culture was teaching 13 to 19-year-olds data science um, on Zoom. It was during the pandemic. And one of the most difficult things we've ever done, but also definitely the most rewarding. Uh, so graduate school teaching and going back and bringing more voices into the professional space um, was a stepping stone that led me to do a lot of other teaching and data culture as an organization. Not the first company that I started, but the first successful consultancy that Lee and I built. One of the prime aspects or components of the people that we how we would call it learning, education, and teaching was like a core tenet of that organization. And everyone that we hired would share that with you. And it continues to be. And we do hiring people from different backgrounds and bringing them in and continuing that message. It was like always the sort of secondary mission to bring more voices into the space. Yeah, it sounds like you're very passionate about democratizing access right, to technical field um, by way of instruction, by way of education. And yeah, we, we talk about Kubernetes later on when we discuss some of the work with data culture, but that sounds like the, that's been the common thread that tied your career together and how you even find people to recruit them later on with some of your current entrepreneurial endeavors. Yeah, I feel like it's a responsibility as someone in the space to actually bring more people into it and also not just setting the example, but when I talk to people in a classroom setting about my experiences and how I got into the space, I have to believe that it's possible and that you don't actually need to have years and years of computer science and education, whatever it is, or have gone to a specific school or have learned something from a specific age to become a member of this like industry. Absolutely. So circling back into your career to graduation, you joined the Washington Post to work as the data visualization specialist on the brand studio team. What were some of the valuable lessons that you learned from that first job working with data? Yeah, so I worked on the team in New York and they were selling branded content. So it was a segue from the advertising side. And I also collaborated with folks in the newsroom that was in Washington and went to DC quite frequently. It was an amazing experience. It was a bit tragic because it was happening around the 2016 election. So walking into the Washington Post the day after and seeing all of my teammates in tears and sharing that experience was both amazing, but also painful and difficult. But I think data visualization as an industry, it's works the best in the lens of journalism. The Washington Post, the New York Times, Vox, the Wall Street Journal, the pieces that they've been able to put out there, this way of designing data in a front-end D3JS JavaScript experience is like the best form of data visualization, I think. Like when you think about Tableau dashboards and business intelligence tools, and we can talk about this a little bit more with what I'm doing with Prequel, that is data visualization. That's definitely maybe the most common form of it. But what's so special is being able to share stories with these broad audiences in a super cutting edge technical way. When you see these um, arrows light up, who's going to win, Hillary or Trump? It was a very interesting time to be designing that work. Um, and I had some really amazing leaders at the Washington Post that I could look up to. And there was a lot of exciting work coming out of there. Um, so the journalism space was an amazing place to start my career and to also cultivate those learnings that I had done in the master's degree in a very real sense. Amazing time to be at the Washington Post and definitely one of the best decisions I made to go work there straight out of that program. Yeah, yeah thanks for sharing that experience. And maybe just touch on this a little bit. I'm curious, are you still keeping up to date with like the state of data journalism and how to see journalism evolve to incorporate data analytics into their products? Yeah, that's a totally great question. And also just 
I could talk about data journalism for a long time. When I give data visualization lectures today, I reference pieces that were worked on when I was at the Washington Post and prior. There is a 2013 piece um, on gun violence that Periscope put out, um, which I think has since been acquired and, and transitioned and things have changed. But there's something about data visualization journalism that's just timeless. And the amount of work and effort that goes into designing a web page or any kind of visualization that's interactive in such a way, it, it's far beyond what usually would go into a basic infographic or even just like a written piece. Not that there's not time, but it's it's a six to eight week development period, at least, if not longer. These pieces could get worked on for years. And what's exciting about that is that they actually do last for years because it's so interesting that the level of user experience and all of the different design components and the writing. And oftentimes these people, these graphic editors, they're celebrities in, in the data visualization field that are at the Washington Post or the New York Times. I have a good friend who's still with the New York Times as a graphic editor. Um, she writes all of the articles and designs the code. So talk about multidisciplinary people. It's a really unique skill set uh, and an evolution of journalism for sure from the past hundred years of uh, journalism being written work, printed work, now digital work, digital interactive work. And it's going even more in that direction with video and the layering of video through data visualization pieces. It really brings the work to life. And you can reach much broader audiences as well. It makes that more accessible. There is like a limitation to what's accessible digitally. And also there's a lot of work that goes into thinking about how are users going to learn to engage with this piece because they've never seen it before. Every piece is unique. It's not like a website they return to every day. So how do you get them to engage in the right way and teach them what to click on, what to look at? Often these are users that are maybe um, in their adult years and they haven't grown up with this type of technology. They've been reading newspapers and now we're introducing something that's like a mobile application. So it's really interesting and it combines social psychology, um, human-centered interaction design. It's a very interesting space um, and I'm still super passionate about it and, and follow it very closely. There's an amazing organization, company, The Pudding, Polygraph. They're, I think, the forefront and we've collaborated with them through data culture, actually. Matt and Caitlin there are close colleagues. So yeah, still really involved. And I've obviously hired a lot of people from that space as well at different companies that I've started. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for sharing that insight. It sounds like even though it took a lot of work up front to construct this piece, but the content is evergreen, right? The last part, why? And, that, and also to that, I love that part about accessibility in quite a rich audience, especially with newer generations who are more accustomed to digital interaction rather than just support printing press by the previous generation. Stepping sideways from data a little bit, throughout this period, you actually also co-founded a creative community called Rawhouse, which brings together emerging talent in design, technology, and entrepreneurship. Can you share the story behind your engagement in that community? Yeah, I love talking about Raw House, and I feel like I don't get to talk about it enough. It's a great moment. So my first company that I ever founded, co-founded with Amy Jung, who's still a dear friend, and attended my wedding a few months ago, and I should probably be seeing her soon. We met actually while I was studying at Parsons. We were both volunteering, or she was working, and I was part-time working for an accelerator there that was focused on retail. and a couple other things. And we realized, again, through this lens of technology and, and education, that designers and engineers, there was a gap and they were very curious about each other's industries, but not necessarily able to connect. And we started hosting in-person monthly events through this organization called Raw House in New York City and a little bit in San Francisco as well to bring together creative technology um, engineers, folks from all over the industry to hear professionals speak about their experience. We also did a lot of support in like hiring and talent. We believe that most people are not actively looking for new roles or top talent isn't, but they're passively looking for new roles. 
this is also the era of like creative mornings, which is a very successful uh, in-person experience group that, that was running morning pre-work sessions and things like that. And I really believe in-person experiences. So over 10 months, I think we hosted, yeah, more than 10 events and cultivated over 2,000 people live in all these different spaces. We would activate WeWorks, we would activate office spaces, creative spaces. And it was a really exciting time. And it was also overlapping with my time at The Post and creative young people coming out. Um, and of all ages, there was a lot of diversity happening there. So really exciting time, really powerful. I don't, we, we have some metrics around how many people were placed. We never made it uh, like something that we could monetize. So I ended up uh, leaving the post and going to WeWork and Raw House slowed down a little bit, but it, the community lives on. And I think that one of the most powerful things in the greater design technology industry is bringing together these multidisciplinary thinkers. And that was Raw House in a big way. Yeah, it sounds like you're really excited about this notion of community and the power of, of gatherings, like in-person gatherings with this community. Just out of curiosity, like looking back at that experience, organizing a lot of events in person at, at, at this point, I believe, in, in your opinion, what are some of the criteria for good in-person gatherings? Like, how do you make sure that you facilitate like, a good atmosphere for, for networking and, and connection being built? Yeah, so it's an interesting question because obviously COVID has changed that dramatically. One of my favorite parts about living in New York City is that it's very common that people cultivate in person, that they want to attend breakfasts and after work gatherings. And I think that there's just something really special about that. Uh, and there's been lots of attempts to do so. And I think Burning Man just took place and like highest turnouts and lots of different things are going on there. For me, during the pandemic, one thing that did culture was doing these like online 100 person monthly events. So there's something really powerful about gathering people in person, but it's not limited to person environment. I think creativity comes from connecting with people outside of your typical space. With the newest company, Prequel, we do quarterly offsites where we fly everybody out now. Things are getting safer again. So I'm really passionate about looking people in the eye and having a conversation that's either about work or not about work in the context of a professional relationship or not. I think it's really effective. I think that's like super non-negotiable. Everyone agrees that that's something that needs to happen, but productivity can happen online. And since Raw House, the two companies that I've started with Leah, Data Culture and Prequel uh, are both fully remote friendly. Data Culture is entirely remote. Prequel, we have offices in New York, but the the team is flexible and in Austin and San Francisco um, and beyond. So, yeah, I think it's a blend of those two things, but I'm definitely really passionate about gathering people, conferences, learning and education. It's about the shared experiences. I think when you have a purpose, it ha helps a lot as well. Versus just like throwing people in a room to have a drink, it's not quite enough. Yeah, yeah, I think that shop purpose is just motivate people to come in and the people that keep people to stay. Stepping back again to your career, as you mentioned, you leave the Ocean Post and enjoy WeWork as a senior data visualization engineer uh, focused on designing and building graphics, dashboard, and tooling that tells stories using data. Uh, first of all, how does this update come about? And secondly, what were some of the data visualization projects that you work on during the time of work? Yeah, so at a certain point at the Washington Post, I realized I wanted to move to a New York-based journalism place, and I started applying for roles. And through that, someone on LinkedIn, one, a recruiter who I just kept in touch with, she's amazing, found me from WeWork and reached out saying, we're thinking of starting a data visualization engineering team. This is when WeWork was valued at over 40 billion, they had 2,000 employees when I joined, but they were starting all sorts of different teams and it was a really creative place. And Leo Weiss, my co-founder now, was the hiring manager for the role and we spoke on the phone and she, I was at the Washington Post, I, I, was, I went into the wellness room and I got on a call with her and 
she was sharing, oh, well, I've also been in the humanities space. She'd actually studied German and history in her undergraduate years and then got it into code. So that was something that we connected immediately on. And she'd led all sorts of versions of the data team at WeWork. She was one of their earliest employees. So I was just immediately drawn to that. And she said to me, listen, like, whatever you want to do here, we can make it happen. Data visualization is one thing, but the need for us to make data more accessible and tell stories with it really a requirement. It's something this company needs more than anything. And we went on to create our own educational programs and do more of that at work. But yeah, I was recruited to be a data visualization engineer and I really hadn't been coding for a few years since the master's program. So I got back into that. I was excited to go back to the engineering stuff. But then I ended up building this amazing partnership with Leah, which absolutely changed my life and career. And it just continued to evolve. So we spent an amazing uh, couple of years that we were teaching people about how to leverage data to solve problems. We also designed different visualization projects. There was like how to construct a building, like the process of that, coming up with innovative products for the company where internal folks could better leverage data and create dashboards, lots of different projects like that, projects for the CEO. Uh, How he spent his time was one of the visualization prompts that we had. But WeWork was one of those places where you could get up and do whatever you wanted to do. And if others believed in the project, you were given fame. And I really enjoyed that. It was my best professional experience and definitely the professional experience that led me to fully go deep into this entrepreneurship space because when Lee and I left, we were, we decided to found a company and we were already on that path. We had been intrapreneurs there. We were starting our own sort of like mini companies within. Um, but we also realized there's no other organization we'd want to work for. So we have to start our own and we have to fill the gaps. So yeah, that was an amazing couple of years. We also flew all over the world with WeWork. They sent us to Singapore and Shanghai and London and Mexico City to teach people about data. And that was so exciting. And yeah, I said to Leah recently, I was like, I think those were some of the best years of my life. And she was surprised to hear it, but it was a really exciting time. So grateful for that experience as well. Yeah. So it sounds like the straightforward creativity and and flexibility in the role, the environment that allows you to try out different things as well as this sort of partnership that you formed with Leah when you interviewed with her, the chemistry that you formed, those other couple of criteria that, that make sure to try with work and stay with work for, I believe, close to three years. I want to dive deep, a bit deeper into that initiative that you mentioned about, that internal project that you two form what we work. And actually, there's a, an article about this on the work blog dated back in June 2019 that I was able to come across. So the initiative was called Data Cult. Initially, that's the name of the project. And it teach we work in power to solve business problems using data through session or problem-solving methodology and manipulating and analyzing data, among others. So would you mind walking through the, the evolution of the Data Co. initiative within WeWork throughout your time there? Yeah, so I mentioned Leah recruited me to join, and I joined her team. And the first thing I did when I got to WeWork was go through this onboarding program that she had come up with a colleague called Data Cult, but it was a different version of it than what we ran with. And the first two weeks of your time at the company, you had to try to solve a problem worth $10 million for the business or $1 million, I think it was then, using data and build a product. And it was like the way that the data team would better access all of the schemas and all of the relevant metrics within the organization and, and basically learn what that was. And I loved it. I'd never worked anywhere before where people asked me what problem I wanted to solve. And I was able to come up with a project. And I had been in education and I had taught at Columbia and uh, Parsons by then and had all that experience. And I was like, this is a really cool initiative. We should blow it out. Every employee should have access to this. So Leah thought that was a great idea. Together, we wrote a brand new curriculum and just invited colleagues from different teams, from the architecture team, from the sales team, from the finance team to come into a room and learn SQL and learn about problems and then eventually develop their own product. And that was how it started. We threw three people in a room in the HQ in New York 
uh, and ran this two-week program and their managers all approved their time. And it just took off and we started running it once a quarter in New York. And then we started running it once a quarter in New York and once a quarter on the road. We ended up running like 14 or 15 cohorts of the program over a couple of years. We were really busy. We, that's how we flew around the world. We traveled to Singapore and Shanghai and London and Mexico City and Tel Aviv to train employees on this initiative. And it was exciting because solving $10 million in one project seems like a difficult thing, but it was actually really not that difficult. The company was deleting money in more ways than we actually knew at the time. But also just when you're running an organization that's that large, there were 60,000 employees by the time me and Leah left. We were there's just so many ways where money's being left on the table. So it was tied to revenue, but super creative. Uh, and we got a lot of recognition for it. And it was, yeah, the best work we'd done. Once we got to a place where that program was so successful, we knew this is a partnership to continue. And we started running the program for companies that we work had been acquiring because meetup.com and Flatiron School, and it was some of those relationships that led us to being really well equipped to then start our own company, which data culture was formed based on that. And it was just a natural fit. For sure. Thanks for kind of sharing that, that, that journey and how you two got an opportunity to travel and, and teaching employees on this first session. And I'm sure like your background in teaching also have you become more, even more equipped to the leading session and, and teaching corporate employees as well. So we talk about how you two decided to leave. We work to start your, your own company, so the name's Data Culture, and this is in early 2020. And so you were at work about two and a half years, and then you start you two started Data Culture, and you also mentioned a little bit about you started like working with some of the company that we work acquire to teach this skill set, and I felt like that might be give you to the confidence to just try out on your own. If I'm correct, could you just share the parting story of Data Culture in more detail? Yeah, so we left WeWork at the end of 2019. And basically, as I mentioned, we didn't think that there was another company on the planet that we would want to join and would have the right type of culture and we would have the same kind of flexibility that we had there. So we founded Data Culture, I think it was, yeah, or LL was founded in 2019. We wired each other $1,500 or whatever it was to like just enough to start a bank account mm -hmm. and started pinging all of our old colleagues, many of which had left WeWork at that time, to see what projects we could take on and think about what could we sell. I was selling data and visualization engineering services and Leah had a deep experience and background in setting up modern data stacks and setting up modern data infrastructure. And our first two projects were one with Code with Classy, coming up with an educational data science program for 13 to 19 year olds and teaching it, which was definitely within our wheelhouse. And the other project was with venture capital VC that wanted to visualize diversity and inclusion data from all of their companies and share that back with their portfolio to make better decisions. And Data Culture still does that for them. It's like an annual report. So we started out with those two projects and within a few months, the pandemic began and all these companies sent, needed a lot of help setting up their modern data infrastructure. So we got into this game of setting up Snowflake, Fivetrend, DBT, Looker, a really basic modern stack or going into larger organizations eventually and helping recalibrate everything because as was the case at WeWork, most organizations can't leverage data for decision-making. They don't have the technology in place. And if they do have the technology in place, they don't know how to use it. There's a problem within the, the structure and the people and data teams and business users don't really work well together. And the business users need the data to make decisions. And the data team is tasked with this impossible challenge of structuring data very quickly and passing it along and visualizing it and then hoping the numbers match. And that the definitions that they'd written in SQL are, are the correct ones that they've been given by business users. We created this very fast-growing lucrative business quite quickly, uh, eventually hiring 15 employees and doing many millions in revenue and working with 40-plus companies by the end of 2021. And then looked back and thought, okay, what are we spending most of our time doing? How, what are our learnings? 
And that was the foundation of prequel because we realized that the majority of our engineering hours were being spent modeling data in the form of metrics. And metrics felt so custom and unique to each organization, but actually most companies in the same vertical had the same data sources. They were using the same SaaS tools, whether it was the e-com space with Shopify, Klaviyo, GA stacks, or it was the health tech space or whatever it was. And they had the same metrics that they wanted to calculate. And we started to reuse code internally. And then eventually we're like, this is a product. Let's raise some money for some engineers on a product team because we're profitable. We don't want to you know, go too deep into the profits to fund this. And eventually we started speaking to some VCs and they did not care that data culture was profitable and they didn't care about money. They wanted to see how it would become a product company. Within three weeks, we raised $7 million from Bessemer and Felices, hired a CEO to run data culture, and started the new venture. And that's six months ago now. Brings us up until today, where we're heads down focused on building the prequel product, which is a data transformation solution for business users. Yeah, that's a lot that you just go through in like five minutes. And I think I don't like preempt for the rest of my question, but yeah, you can go back. And... Yeah, absolutely. But thanks for painting that whole kind of narrative right away. So I want to touch on the different part of what you just mentioned, right? So let's start out implementing modern data stack for different clients, right? You mentioned as pandemic happening in companies, right? There's, there's the, the lack of expertise in building the data stack for the companies. And that's why data culture come in to help them with setting up this tooling. And I was actually browsing through the data culture website in preparation for this conversation. And it seems you have a very well-defined blueprint for each of the client engagement, starting out by defining the data maturity and business goal, and then building a customized project plan that translates this vision into action. And finally, working iteratively with building checkpoints to ensure design outcomes for your client. Can you unpack this different step of your tooling implementation process for your clients? Yeah, so data culture is a data engineering and visualization consultancy. So we have a data visualization studio team, and then we have the core business product, which is helping companies reach their next phase of data maturity, wherever they are. So if they're in the earliest phases, they may not have a data stack set up yet, which we can do in three months. And that involves putting in place some kind of cloud storage data warehouse, ingesting all of their source data into that warehouse, structuring it by writing SQL, implementing an open source solution like dbt, and then eventually setting up their visualization porting. And that's like our initial package. If you already have a data warehouse, you're probably having trouble with the data modeling part, but you might be coming in saying, I want to implement Looker. I need a new BI tool. I want to change my ingestion solution. I'm migrating warehouses. This team can't access that data, et cetera. Um, so we structure custom engagements that way, but we have a few kind of core packages that we sell. We also care deeply about empowering our partners on the business side and empowering the business users or the data team or whoever it is that's hired us to understand the work that we've done. No black box systems. We want them to understand why the metrics are structured the way they are, what code's been written, how their stack looks. We don't sell engineering hours, we sell data teams. So we have engineers, project managers, strategists together on a project at a given time. Uh, we act as a fractional data team, and we also do a bunch of teaching and education work. So that's part of the unique offering of data culture. Yeah, really like that part of fractional data teams, right? Because I can imagine like a lot of these, your clients probably don't have the either budget or just time resources to hire dedicated data specialists to work on the data project. So they might need to leverage like a fraction data team to help out with that process. And at Avalib, data culture also score a couple of partnerships with, with different tooling in the modern data stack, like Fashion, Segment, to just to name a few. How have you and Leah been able to score this partnership and collaborate with this tooling company? Yeah, so... 100% of data culture's early business came from those partnerships with Fivetran, Looker, DBT, Snowflake, whoever it was. And partnerships in the modern data stack are really important. 
we had implemented those tools and done all of those migrations while at WeWork. So Leah had seen every version of that data team evolve. We knew what the best tools were in stack, like from the get-go. And during our first implementation project, we called these companies and said, we want to implement it. We needed those tools to do our work. And then eventually they graduated to more sophisticated partnerships. There's a really nice synergy between consultancies and data partnerships. And for a lot of companies, like that really is their best option, bringing in consulting services rather than hiring robust analytics engineering teams. Mm -hmm. uh, because so many of these companies don't really need that moving forward. And it's much better to just take on like fractional support and then own it. But that's, again, the premise for why we started prequel. And you also talk about that data visualization studio, right? And I believe that this service offers data storytelling service to mission-aligned organization. And this is like your, your bread and butter. Can you share some of the exciting visual and custom design work that the studio has worked on? Yeah. So one of the things that's most unique about data culture is they have this visualization studio. And for most organizations like that might be like an advertising arm or like its own kind of thing, but it's not necessarily like part of the same company. So the DataVis Studio is the team. I'm so proud of what they've been able to accomplish. I just caught up with them today, actually. Basically, they come up with creative projects and solutions for visualizations that companies may need. I mentioned that the earliest project Data Culture worked on was this visualization solution, visualizing DNI data for portfolio companies of this VC. Today, projects that the data uh, visualization team works on, we did Vote.org's 2020 impact report. This is like the core of journalism, visual storytelling, visual scrolly telling, they call it as you scroll, the story unfolds that I studied at Parsons and then went on to do at the Washington Post. So these custom uh, websites or web applications or design pieces, we produce, they're excellent. The database studio team is amazing at it. And a lot of companies require it for either like external facing pieces, like the vote.org piece. SeatGeek was a client that we worked with for something internal. They needed some kind of internal dashboard that was hypervisual and required that type of skill set. I would say they're the top team that builds this type of work. And you should reach out to them at dataculture.studio for any kind of inquiries. Absolutely. And you also mentioned throughout this conversation a few times about Copy Classy, right? Let's just talk about it. And the idea here again is that you have to collaborate with, with them to teach online classes to empower young scholars to uh, solve important issues using data science. Would you mind going over your experience teaching um, with Code and Classy? Yeah, so Code with Classy was referred to us by our friend Avi Flombaum, who is one of the co-founders of the Flatiron School, which was a company we work had acquired and we had met during that time. And he referred us to create their data science curriculum. So prior, they were doing web development and mobile development, and now they've launched a whole bunch of other courses. We designed their, their initial data science curriculum, taught it, included data visualization in that curriculum. And it's just an amazing initiative funded by... They're a nonprofit, but Carly Kloss is the one spearheading all of it. And she's just so passionate about helping young women, young people get into the coding space. And she's made an impact there. So the data science curriculum fits into that. It's completely free. It's offered in the summers. They're also starting to offer programs during the year. It just fits so neatly with the mission that data culture has and the mission that Lee and I are constantly promoting of bringing more voices into the space. So it's a two-week program offered several times throughout the summer for 13 to 19-year-olds. And we've graduated now hundreds of scholars. And the way that it works is they train instructors now to teach the course. So Lee and I taught the first iteration of it. But yeah, it's run hundreds of times over, over the summer. Yeah, I see. Do you recall any exciting projects that these students create? Any 
most surprising things that they were able to achieve? Can you see the program? The year that Leah and I taught the program, we had them use open source data. New York City has all this open source data that you can access, how many trees are planted in New York, many different data points. Like you can see 311 data, 911, there's a lot of different data sources. And there's some amazing initiatives and projects that were created. A lot of them were related to COVID. You can find a lot of COVID data online. Gen Z is the best generation, I would say, to exist. A lot of things to encourage young women identifying people to get into non-binary, everybody to get into the data space and technology space. I'm trying to think of one specific project, um, but there were a bunch of exceptional ones. And since then, so many projects have come from this COVID Flossy initiative. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think you can access some of them online. These scholars come up with projects in two weeks with very little support. They're really impressive young people, and it fit really neatly with the data culture program that Lee and I had been running with professionals at WeWork and at other organizations. Absolutely. Yeah. One final question that I want to ask you about the time with data culture, which is in the name, like scaling data culture. So we talk about like the technical aspect, both data stack implementation and visualization, as well as the educational aspect on teaching classes. And I'm sure like, Throughout this period, working with data culture and working with different companies, you also have the firsthand experience of seeing like how this company cultivating a data-driven culture, their own organization. And to be part of this conversation, I was just talked that you and the get at the Modern Data Stack Conference in 2020 by Fatran, and you're saying like scaling data culture requires the commitment from both business people. Mm. People, can you expand more on that idea? How it looks like in practice. Yeah. So the thing about data culture is very few organizations have accomplished it. And there's many reasons for this, but the main one is it's really hard. It's really hard to have data accessible to business users. It's hard technically and it's hard culturally. It's hard to get people to buy into the idea that these numbers are the trusted numbers, that you should be accessing them in the moment when you're making a decision. Um putting those numbers in front of people at that moment is a lot harder than it seems. And the times when it's successful is very rare for most companies that aren't Spotify, Netflix, Facebook, Google. Like they've succeeded. They collect data on their users. They put it back into their product. But if you're not one of those five, then you probably have source system application data from all different applications that is used to calculate even the most basic metric like a customer. So the way that we've tackled the problem is both through the education in-person side of things, making sure that every employee that joins your company understands the value of data, how to access it, how to use it to make decisions, where to find it. That's all kind of saying one thing, which is like making it accessible. And Mm -hmm. we do a few technical things, but really it's about being able to use data in the way that you think and structure problems. A lot of the curriculum that we've taught over the years is around structuring a problem statement versus teaching SQL. We believe that if every person in your organization could write SQL, it wouldn't necessarily change the bottom line. It wouldn't make your business more profitable. It's about making sure everybody in the organization can structure a clear problem statement and ask for support in the right way from their data team, and then use those use the output um, in whatever work they're doing, whether it's sales, marketing, architecture, it really doesn't matter. Um, and on the technical side, we've seen amazing tools come out in recent years since Redshift was uh, brought to us in 2012. Data warehouses are super fast. You can ingest data in minutes. You can visualize it in any number of tools. There's great business intelligence people out there that will build any dashboard for you. Can you ask the right question that the dashboard will answer? That's a lot more difficult. So it's the combination of the technical skill set and the soft skills, the people skills, the culture, the community, having data ambassadors, people on every team who push this forward. That's what we've seen be most effective. And we've shared that a lot with companies that data culture has supported over the years and continues to. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for elaborating on that answer. So talking about the fun part, 
that you are currently working on. Since April 2022, you have been co-partners, co-CEO of cool. And the company provides a no-code data transformation solution built for business users. In your previous answer, you also talk about the motivation behind Prequel, which is the problem of metrics and how that uh, manifests throughout a lot of this conversation, the customer's updated culture. Can you dive deeper on that and share the product story of Prequel as well as like, why is there a need for a tool like this in the market? Yeah, so throughout my entire career, and especially me and Leah's co-founder relationship, we've been facing this challenge of structuring data in a way that it's usable. It's the question of why don't the numbers match? It's the question of why aren't people making data-driven decisions or why can't business users better access core metrics, basic metrics? How many customers do we have? What's our net revenue? Things like that. We experienced that so frequently throughout our time at Data Culture and prior at WeWork and so many people that have come and worked with us and talked to us have this huge issue. And it's the gap between the data team and the business users and the data team doesn't understand or rather the business users don't understand why the data team uh, isn't working faster, isn't structuring things better. Why don't the numbers match? And the data team is trying to get the answers from the business users on why they want to structure this or that and uh, explaining to them things take time. This metric is reliant on writing this number of lines of SQL in order to transform your raw data, which has null values, which is coming from all different sources, etc. So instead of trying to do something flashy and fun in the data viz space or going deeper in the education culture, we decided to run headfirst at the most challenging part of the problem which is the transformation. It's the T in ETL. It's the part of the process that requires the hundreds of lines of SQL to be written. We didn't want to create a GUI on top of SQL. We wanted to create something that really did fit into the workflow of business users, but also generated clean schemas on the back end because data teams always rip out these tools that do the work for the business user, but don't expose any of the logic behind it. So we cared about no black box systems, transparency, empowerment, we felt like there was nothing out there and we were waiting with data culture. Someone's going to build this thing and then we'll sell it. That's what we've been doing with Fivetran and Snowflake and no one was building it. So eventually we felt we needed to tackle the problem and we really did believe and continue to believe that there is a product automation solution for structuring data. There's just got to be. So even though it's really hard to do, we're working on it. And we've had a lot of experience working with customers that need this. And it just feels like the biggest pain point in getting people to the place of achieving like data-driven thinking. Yeah. Thanks for kind of sharing that, that story, that motivation. And I believe the product currently is still in, in beta, right? We still in modern way to listen of beta users, find design partners to iterate on the product. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, how's those conversation with design partners so far for you and yeah, see, there's the journey of finding product market fit. If you're willing to share any of those. Yeah, so we are currently still in beta. We plan to launch the public version end of 22, early 2023. In terms of product market fit, we know this is a problem because we've experienced it firsthand for so long. It's about figuring out is this product, is prequel going to solve this for? all organizations within a given vertical. Our design partners feel the pain and they're all just really waiting for the right thing to be put in their hands. The early product does solve a lot of their problems. I think what's going to be the real challenge for us is as we start working with more complex data sources and more complex verticals, is this something that can scale? Because we know that we've we can build something on the back end that will work for all organizations within the D2C marketplace, which is our initial vertical that we're starting with. As we start moving on to applications that are custom, can we build a model that structures any data and can look at any snippet and then automatically generate the right metrics? I think on the back end side, I actually feel pretty good about that. What's more difficult is the design challenge. It's putting something in the hands of business users that asks them the questions that we need to get the inputs to then structure the data in a way that's intuitive and that fits into their current workflow. 
So unlike a lot of early companies, um, we're design-led, product-led, design-forward. We have a robust design team. I obviously come from that world, and Leah comes from the data engineering world. Um, so we're just excited to put it in the hands of more folks and uh, start solving this massive pain point. The other thing I'll say is when it comes to data transformation, it's often an overlooked problem. Not all businesses know that the reason their numbers don't match is because they don't have a data model or their data model isn't robust enough or isn't consistent enough, et cetera. So we're going to be doing a lot of work next year talking about this problem, evangelizing the issue of data transformation and trying to get more people up to speed on how they can be data driven and better understand the information within their company to make the right choices that aren't just intuition based, which is basically what everyone's doing today. Absolutely. Also, I'm just curious, what's behind the name prequel? Yeah, so prequel comes from this idea of the prequel to analytics. It's like the first step in your analytics journey. It's not the data science side of things. It's once your data is all in your warehouse, what's the first thing you need to do? People don't realize that this is what they need to data people know, but it's structuring their data. So it's a play on SQL, but it's the prequel to everything. I see. And also the logo of the company, it looks very interesting. It's like a comma. Maybe can you share a bit about like the meeting guy? Yeah. So our logo is, again, a SQL reference. When you write a line of SQL, you put the semicolon at the end to acknowledge mm. that is now a completed, executed statement. Yeah. Um, and we're hoping we can help a lot of companies do that without actually writing the SQL themselves, but having really clean schemas. So we talk about the product aspect. Hiring is not a very critical responsibility of any early stage startup product. What valuable lesson have you learned to attract the right people given your expert hiring for both previously at Data Culture and now for prequel? Yeah, so data culture was 70% women and people of color and it wasn't that hard to do. There's a lot of ways that you can um, be intentional about hiring teams that are representative of the population, um, whether it's making sure that everybody you interview, there's five people that are not the white man that is like the majority of people in my inbox right now who are writing or whoever it is. It's doable. We also partner with amazing recruiters that search for the folks because they are out there. There isn't a limit to what talent is available. I think you hear all the time, oh, we just can't find engineers that are women. They, they don't exist. It's not true. It's really not true. And yeah, we're pretty successful. We just made another amazing data engineering hire and we're continuing to do so. And we'll continue as the organization scales. We don't plan to have a typical sales organization of people that look exactly the same and look like all other sales organizations. And the same is something that we experienced during our fundraise with the VC world, which unfortunately is, I think, one of the least diverse spaces I've ever experienced. Actually, on that part about in diversity in the workplace, especially in the data world, like given your experience, you tried fighting common candidates in hiring, like what, what do you see as some of the major bottlenecks that sort of prevent more women to either entering and, and staying in the data career and what other potential solution industry can Proposed. I think the main bottleneck is that people are not intentionally thinking about this and they're doing what's easy versus working like that little bit harder because it really isn't so difficult and people do what they're used to. It's the, the amount of VC firms that want to invest in us when their team is 100% white men and they think that they're going to be able to give us unique, fantastic advice. It's it's really uninteresting. So I'm excited to see how the space is going to change because it is already beginning to change. I think it's a lack of intention that's led us to this point. I think it's just like the repetition of bad behaviors and cultures that just like don't bring in more voices when they absolutely could. So us just going out there, Leah and I as co-CEOs, mm-hmm. there's a podcast we did with our partners at Bessemer that talks about this and our partnership and how many times we were told during our fundraise that's very uncommon to have two co-CEOs. 
there's more men named David than there are women CEOs. Of course, this is an uncommon situation, but we've always been partners and that's what works for us. Doesn't mean it works for everyone. So I think a big part of entrepreneurship for us has been doing things our way and creating the type of organization that we would want to be a part of. And I hope that other people out there that might not be represented in the typical way of companies at VCs beyond um, are inspired to go and create companies that will be reflective of a place they want or reflective of their identities because the level of intention that it takes is just, it's not that hard. And we've been able to do it with ease. Not necessarily starting a company is so easy and being an entrepreneur is easy, but hiring teams that are reflective of the population is much easier than I think people think and just requires commitment. Yeah, thanks for sharing that valuable perspective and realize your part of intentionality and just like setting out the goals that, that you to do it. You mentioned in working fundraising from VCs a few times throughout our chat and you mentioned earlier about the, the CTRA for prequel, which you raised 7 million from restaurant venture partners, business ventures, and a host of one-on industry ventures in both data and product. What fundraising advice could you give to data founders who are seeking the right investors for the startups? Yeah, I were really set on having a few data founder leaders in our corner, getting that seal of approval. So I think it's really important to find the folks that you're inspired by and talk to them and whether or not they become your investors, because actually investors don't help you at all and they don't give you any time and you don't actually need their time because you need to be left alone to build your product. It's still great to have a few folks in your corner. And honestly, I think a lot of people think fundraising is about Meeting big name VCs and going out and asking for money and having a nice story or a nice pitch deck. But if you actually understand the problem space you're getting into and have a vision for what you want to build, it's pretty straightforward. People will get on board. And I think we thought it would be uh, more difficult than it was for us only because we were overprepared. Like we had. We're fundraising in a space about a problem that we know so deeply. Instead of kicking around ideas that you think might be a good idea or a VC might, find things that you're passionate about that you are uniquely well-suited to tackle and solve. Find partners that you really like and want to work with and want to talk to. And then the path unfolds for you. I think things go wrong for founders when they're always trying to please someone else or think about what a VC would like or what another customer might want, but they don't actually know that customer. You really need to trust your intuition and trust your own knowledge base and lean into that versus guessing what other people might want or think. Yeah, I see. Thanks for sharing that insight. Again, the emphasis on understanding the product statement and knowing exactly the path to go to allows you to separate a signal from the noise by the right partner who actually educated about your problems and who will be able to provide not just financial means, but also support along the way. So Gabi, at this point of our conversation, I want to move to the final closing segment in which I'm going to ask you three rapid fire questions, and then you can provide a quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the data visualization community whose work you admire. Three data visualization people that I look up to in the space is my good friend, Umi Siam at the New York Times. Georgia Lupi, all-time favorite, has been doing a lot of exciting, fun work lately. And Susie Liu, who was at Netflix, I believe. Number two, name one book that you recommend for people to cultivate an analytical mindset. There's some amazing data visualization books out there, but Invisible Women is a really good one that I like. It's not just about data visualization. It's about data in general and gaps in that world. And finally, imagine that you can send out a single tweet to all the early career data practitioners on Twitter. What could you tweet about? I think I would spread this message of like, how can we together change this industry? Because I think if everyone did unite, we would bring more voices in quicker than we do as individuals um, together. 
But I would also be curious what other people think is the greatest problem we're tackling when it comes to creating data-driven thinking and culture. So what do the other practitioners feel? Fabulous. I think that's a great way to end our conversation. So yeah, Gabby, I really enjoyed studying with you today, learning about your career, studying painting in college, studying data visualization for your master, some of your work at the Washington Post. We work the Data Cultural Initiative and Job Print Journey with Prequel, a very theoretical threats on beating modern data stack, beating partnership for different tooling companies, scaling data culture, as well as building a new company to democratize matrix transformation for data teams across the industry. I'll be sure to include things that we discussed today in the show notes. So let's have a chance to take a look and follow up to learn more about your current journey with Prequel as the product commodity in the public earlier this year. So yeah, Krabi, really enjoy our trust today and hope you have a great rest of your evening. Thank you so much. We'll be in touch. Let me know if you need more. Thanks. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm if you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.